0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management. Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel.
1: Well, hello there, everybody. Hi, my friends, and blessings to all of you. I hope you had a good week, not too much snow and rain and sleet, nice, and all that, and you had a chance to love somebody deeply. So, today I'm going to read some stories as I, as you were notified, uh, by Voice America. Uh, If you're not getting information about my shows, I need you to... Send me an email. I have a new email especially for this show. So I want you to, I'm going to give you two seconds to go find a pencil or pen, something to write on, because I want you to send me an email. So do that, and I'll tell you what my email is. It is very simple. Rabbi Mel, R-A-B-B-I-M-E-L. Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. So I want you to send me an email if you're not getting information. I also want you to send me an email uh, to tell me what you think about this show so far. You've listened to me for a while. You've heard me talk. You've heard about grief topics and healing topics and moving in the desert of, of loss, how to get from one to the other. I want to know what you want to talk about. I want to know what you want me to talk about. I want to know what keeps you up at nights in this area. So I have a little offer for you. Uh, The first five emails I get with any kind of reaction to what you've heard so far, uh, send me your address as well, and I will send you a free copy of my book, GPS for Grief and Healing. I'll repeat that. The first five people who write me an email with some sort of comment or reaction about my show so far, I will give you, as my gift, a free copy of GPS for Grief and Healing. It's only the first five, so you better hurry up. Uh, Will I be inundated with emails? I don't know. It depends on you, so There's the new email, and if you haven't been getting information about the show, send me an email. And if you want to say hello, send me an email. And if you want private counseling, send me an email. That's the email with which you will contact me. Okay? Uh, The next time you see my show advertised you'll see some banners which will uh, tell you how to get my books. The first book was And God Created Hope. There'll be a link to Amazon right on the banner. And the second book is A GPS for Grief and Healing. And there will also be a banner, um, a connection, a link to Amazon on that banner as well. So we want to make it as easy as possible for you to read what I have written so far. Will I write another book? I don't know. It depends on you. If you want me to write another book, tell me that. Email me. Tell me what you want me to write a book about. I could write about the Denver Broncos winning the Super Bowl. And that's grief for some people. But I don't think that's what I mean, and you know that. So if you uh, have anything that you want to tell me privately, Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. Now, I promised you that I would read you stories. I would tell you some stories. Because for me, uh, we love to listen to stories we think differently when we hear stories than when we hear people talking. So I want to tell some stories, some of which I've told before, some of which I may have not told before, but even if I've told them before, they're still valuable, and I love every story in my books. So this story is a, is the Zen story that I started with five weeks ago. And it really explains and reminds me my job in this world, my mission, my passion. So it goes like this Tanzan and Eikidu, who were walking along a country road that had become extremely muddy after heavy rains. They're both Zen monks, and their best friends. Near a village, they came upon a young woman who was trying to cross the road, but the mud was so deep it would have ruined the silk kimono she was wearing. Tan Zen at once picked her up and carried her to the other side. The monks walked on in silence. Five hours later, as they were approaching the lodging temple, Ekidu couldn't restrain himself any longer. Why did you carry that girl across the road? He asked his brother. His Zen friend? We monks are not supposed to do things like that. I put the girl down hours ago, said Tanzan. Why are you still carrying her? And as I say in my book, that seems to be our problem as well. We continue to carry those who have left us. We miss them so much that we don't want to put them down. We continue to carry them around with us, hoping that somehow this means they're still alive. But alas, all is for naught. They have died, but we've not yet truly said goodbye to them. Sounds like a paradox, yes? They are dead, yet still alive. We are still physically alive, yet our lives may be spiritually dead. Something is terribly wrong when we live like this, and we feel it every single day. Of our lives. I love that story because it reminds me what my mission in life is, and that is to help people lay them gently down. Them is whoever died. When someone dies, you have to lay them gently down. Otherwise, you're going to be carrying them on your shoulders with you for the rest of your life. You have to allow them to die and it's very hard to do that. You know that, and I know that. But that's our job. That is the job of mourning. It is to let them die. Yes, physically they were taken away from us, but spiritually and emotionally we carry them with us. That's not a good thing. Remember them, yes. Love who they were and what they did for us? Absolutely. But we have to let them die so that our life stories may continue. Okay, here's one that made me cry the first time I read it. It's called One Last Ride. And I call it a story that will stretch out your heart. In the essay One Last Ride from his book Make Me an Instrument of Your Peace, author Ken Nurburn writes about one woman's graceful last ride and the man who gave it to her. And this is what he says. There was a time in my life twenty years ago when I was driving a cab for a living. It was a cowboy's life, a gambler's life, a life for someone who wanted no boss, constant movement, and the thrill of a dice roll every time a new passenger got into the cab. What I did not count on when I took the job was that it was also, for me, a ministry. Because I drove the night shift my cab became a rolling confessional. Passengers would climb in, sit behind me in total anonymity, and tell me about their lives. I encountered people whose lives amazed me, ennobled me, made me laugh, and made me weep. And none of those lives touched me more than that of a woman I picked up late on a warm August night. I was responding to a call from a small brick fourplex in a quiet part of town. I assumed I was being sent to pick up some partiers or someone who had just had a fight with a lover or someone going off an early shift at some factory for the industrial part of town. When I arrived at the address, the building was dark except for a single light in a ground floor window. Under these circumstances, many drivers would just honk once or twice, wait a short minute, and then drive away. Too many bad possibilities awaited a driver who went up to a darkened building at 2.30 in the morning. But I had seen too many people trapped in a life of poverty who depended on taxis as their only means of transportation. Unless a situation had a real whiff of danger, I always went to the door to find the passenger. It might, I reasoned, be someone who needs my assistance. Would I not want a driver to do the same for me if my mother or father had called for a cab? So I walked to the door and I knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail and elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman somewhere in her eighties stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like you might see in a costumes shop or in a Goodwill store or in a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The sound had been her dragging it across the floor. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she asked. I took the suitcase to the cab and then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness it's nothing I told her I try to treat my parent my passengers the way I would want my mother treated oh you're such a good boy she said when we got in the cab she gave me an address and then asked could you drive through downtown it's not the shortest way I answered quickly oh I don't mind she said I'm in no hurry I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to go? I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they had first been married. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she would have me drive slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness, saying, nothing. As the first hint of sun was cresting the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home, with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out of the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. There was nothing more to say. I squeezed her hand once, then walked out into the dim morning light. Behind me, I could hear the door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I did not pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly around, lost in thought. For the remainder of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run, or had honked once, then driven away? How many other moments like that had I missed or failed to grasp? What if I had been in a foul mood and had refused to engage the woman in conversation? We are so conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unawares. When that woman hugged me and said that I had brought her a moment of joy, it was possible to believe that I had been placed on earth for the sole purpose of providing her with that last ride. I do not think that I have ever done anything in my life that was any more important. Let that story sink in, my friends. Listen to it in your car. Listen to it wherever you can. Just listen to it. Story about kindness. It's a story about strength. The woman in this essay and the man who took her on her last ride approached the natural end of her life with dignity. Open hearts. And peace. And every time I read that story, I'm proud of the cab driver. Because as he said, he could have not picked her up. He could have just blown his horn once, worried about his own safety, and then driven away. But that's not what he did. He walked for some reason. God told him to, I think. He walked up to the door and he picked her up, and you heard the rest of the story. So I'm so proud of the cab driver because of what he did. And I'm so proud of the woman for the courage and the strength that she showed at the end of her life. She had dignity. She had self-respect. She honored herself. And she didn't try to fool herself by saying, I'm never going to die. She knew when she was dying. I believe we all know when we're dying. I believe we all know when we're dying. It's one of those truths that God gives us and we get it. The problem is we have such a wonderful society, medical society. Doctors today can do miracles. They can keep your mother or grandmother alive by giving her drugs and by sticking needles in her arms and she can stay alive physically much longer than her mother could when her mother was dying. But you know the question I'm going to ask, what's the point? What's the point of living without being able to communicate with people? It's almost a denial of death. And the family standing around her or him is also guilty of denial of death. Because they think that somehow it's going to get better. Well, I know and you know that when God is ready for us, God will take us. And that's it. You can't prevent it. We're all going to die someday. We hope that it won't be until we're 97 years old. But we know we're going to die. This woman she knew absolutely she was going to die. And she embraced her death. And what she really did by that two or three hour final ride in his taxi was to say goodbye to her life. She had him drive her through the town and all those places that had a special meaning to her. She needed to say goodbye. And she did. We need to say goodbye as well. It's so hard to do that. But that's what we have to do. So just like she said goodbye to the buildings and the streets and all those pieces of her life that were coming to an end, I believe we need to do the same thing. When our time comes. So, when our time comes, we have to say goodbye as well. And we have to make peace with our family members. And we have to make peace with our spouses. And we have to make peace with our kids. It almost doesn't matter why we have problems in relationships, we're going to die. And so we need to forgive people and we need to apologize to people. She had no family left. So she said goodbye by taking the cab ride. Most of us have family that are around us. You've been around the dying, whether it was your parent, or, God forbid, your child, or a close family friend or relative. And I hope that you have apologized to them, and I hope that you have forgiven them. Because then they can die in peace. You want their souls to be at peace when they die. But they can't do it by themselves. You have to assist them. You have to help them. You have to start by saying, I forgive you, Mom, for, and then tell her what you forgive her for. I apologize to you, Daddy, for, and then you tell him exactly what you apologize for. Make it specific. General apologies and general forgiveness doesn't do anything. You have to be specific. Then you tell them that you love them, and you tell them how much you're going to miss them. And then you tell them stories about what happened when you were together celebrating, when you were at a special holiday dinner together, when you were at a special occasion together a wedding, a consecration, a bar mitzvah, something. Because you want them to go out of this world with good memories. Well, they're only going to have good memories if you share those memories with them. So that's the story about the last ride. Now, you know, I will speak rabbinically now and say, nobody knows when our last ride is going to be. It could be tomorrow. You don't know, and I don't know. So you have to be prepared. In the Talmud, it says you have to atone for your sins the day before you die. And, of course, the rabbis ask the question, well, how do you know when is the day before you die? And the answer is, of course, you don't know when the day before you die will be. So you have to assume that every day you live is the day before you die. And it may be. Read the obituaries in your local papers, and you'll see the names of people who Yesterday they were alive and today they're being buried. I hope that they forgave and apologized to their loved ones before they died. Okay. I have some more stories for you. Here's a story That's called, To Be Whole, First You Have to Break. To Be Whole, First You Have to Break. I'd like to share a story with you that beautifully illustrates how our pain and losses lead us to grow and become better people. Author Steve Goodyear tells this story in his book, joy along the way. The story is told of an Eastern village, which through the centuries was known for its exquisite pottery. Especially striking were its urns, high as tables, wide as chairs. They were admired around the globe for their strong form and their delicate beauty. Legend has it that when each urn was apparently finished, there was one final step. The artist broke it and then put it back together with gold filigree. An ordinary urn was then transformed into a priceless work of art. What seemed finished wasn't until it was broken. So it is with people. Broken by hardships, disappointments, and tragedies, they can become disappointed and bitter. But when mended by a hand of infinite patience and love, the finished product will be a work of exquisite beauty and effectiveness. a life which could only reach its wholeness after it was broken. If you feel broken, remember that you are a work of art and you may not actually be complete until the pieces are reassembled and bonded with a golden filigree of love. Now, what happened to that urn happens to us as well. We all start off as beautiful people. We start to live lives of no problems, no sadnesses, no errors, no mistakes, nothing. Just good lives. But that's not the way it ends up. Because sometime during our lives, we make terrible mistakes that hurt people and that hurt ourselves. So what do you do? You have to rebuild yourself. You take the pain and you use that as the glue to re- to rebuild yourself as a different kind of person. And you become a different kind of person. You can be anybody you want. You can change yourself. You can become a loving person instead of a hating person. You can become someone who respects themselves rather than not. You can become a person that respects others rather than not. So just like the Greeks broke the urn and then they rebuilt it, so it became a work of art. I invite you to do the same thing. Okay. I have another story about a friend of mine who was a rabbi who died who was my very best friend. His name was Kenny. We went to high school together. We went to rabbinical school together. We were best friends at summer camp for 20 summers, 20 summers. And I loved him. And we talked five times a week, at least. So, Kenny, well, I tell you what, I'll tell you this story after the break I'll be right back with the story of my best friend.
0: Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, voiceamericaempowerment.com. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning.
1: Hi, I'm back. And I want to share with you the story of my best friend in the whole world, uh, Rabbi Kenny, and how he died and what we can learn from it. Because I, as I tell you all the time, death is a physical event, but they never really die emotionally and spiritually because everybody leaves life lessons. And so we learn life lessons from those who die. I learned life lessons from my friend Kenny. Kenny. So, as I said before, Kenny and I grew up together in Philadelphia. We were like brothers. He was the closest friend I've ever had. We met in a Jewish youth group when I was in high school. Then we went to summer camp together and became counselors together in the same bunk. We both became rabbis and continued our close friendship as adults. Now in January 1986, that was a while ago, but to me it feels like yesterday. In January 1986, the Challenger space shuttle blew apart shortly after liftoff, killing all of the astronauts on board. After an exhaustive investigation of the accident, It was determined that after the explosion, the astronauts were alive for five more minutes. They didn't die right away. They had five minutes to think about it. Kenny wondered what they'd been thinking about during those last minutes when they all knew they were going to die. He wrote a sermon about this and delivered it from the pulpit to its congregation on Yom Kippur in the fall of 1988. Rabbi Berger said in his sermon that people who know that their death is imminent probably think of three things during their final moments. And each of the three begins with the phrase, If only. If only I had known when I said my last goodbye to the people I love that it was my last goodbye. If only I realized what I had while I had it. And finally, if only I had another chance, then I would do it better. In the months that followed from the fall of 1988 to the summer of 1989, his sermon circulated through the country and was quoted by their congregations and in print by close to 1,000 rabbis, including me. Kenny's synagogue had offered him a lifetime contract. At only 41, he'd have the ultimate job security, an offer that many rabbis would love to have. But Kenny wouldn't have been happy at one synagogue for the rest of his life. I knew him well enough to know that. So the question is, would he have accepted their offer? On July 19, 1989, Kenny, his wife, and his two young children boarded a plane in Tampa, Florida, to fly across the country for a visit with his wife's family on the West Coast. Back home, that as yet unsigned lifetime contract with the synagogue waited for him on his desk. All he had to do was return home and sign it. About halfway through the flight, the plane had mechanical problems, and the pilot told everyone to prepare for a crash landing. As the plane spiraled downward, Kenny had time to think about his life. He had time to think about those three if-onlys that he'd spoken of in his now famous sermon. The plane crashed in Sioux City, Iowa killing Kenny and his wife. Their two children survived. What do we make of the irony that Rabbi Kenny Berger died in a manner identical to what he'd written in his sermon, and that he died just before he was supposed to sign a lifetime contract? Kenny's lesson, his mission, if you will, was to learn those three things he wrote about, have time to do them so that he would not not approach his death with any if-onlys, and have time to teach this lesson far and wide before he died. That's why there was a gap of time between the sermon and his death. Would Kenny have signed that lifetime contract? Did he die precisely when he did before signing the contract? Because he would have signed it and ultimately would have regretted it? Ironically, he did end up spending the rest of his life at that synagogue. It's just that the rest of his life did not last very long. Kenny didn't know that the lessons he taught in his sermon were his life's mission, his life's major lesson, and that soon after he'd accomplished that mission and achieved his aha, light bulb moment, he would and could die. The same goes for me and you and everyone else. If you think you know what your mission is, and you think that if you don't complete it, you can postpone your death, just remember that it might not be your true mission and lesson. Don't bother trying to cheat God or Mother Nature. Most likely, something else is your mission, and you'll accomplish it not knowing that's what it was, and that you'll soon leave this life. Your life can be short or long, either way. When you die, by definition, you will have accomplished your mission. When children die after long illnesses, we often hear their parents say that those children taught them love and compassion. Apparently, that was their mission. Once it was accomplished, they left. This world. So that's my story about my best friend, Rabbi Kenny. You know, if only, and this sermon, trust me, was heard by 5,000 members of congregations throughout the country. If only I had known that when I said goodbye for the last time, it was the last time. If only I could have done better in life. If only you fill in the blank because you can make up your own if onlys. If only I had made the world a better place. If only I had not started a fight with people that I loved. If only I had been a happier person and not a complainer. If only, if only, if only. Those are the questions that Rabbi Kenny asked in honor and in memory of those astronauts who died. I can't even imagine how it must have felt in that space capsule knowing that you're going to die, that there's nothing you can do about it, and it's going to be quick. I would feel good at least there would be no pain or the pain would last only a second or two. I would feel better knowing that I had left life lessons back in this world, that my family and friends would remember me for good and not for evil, which leads me to a topic that I've been wanting to talk about and have alluded to, and that is what happens to your soul after you die? We know what happens to your body after you die. You're either buried or you're cremated. That's the easy question. The harder question is, what happens to your soul after you die? Now, you learned in Sunday school, and I learned in Sunday school. Everybody I know and you know learned this in Sunday school. That is, There's a physical place up there in the stars somewhere called heaven. And it's a reward for doing good acts and good deeds on this world. And everybody was taught that there's a place down there somewhere beneath six feet under that's called hell. And that's where bad people go. That's their punishment. So if you live your life and you do good things, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Your soul's going to go to heaven. And you'll be with your family and you'll be with your friends and it'll be just fine. But if you're not a good person, you're going down to hell. And it's hell, fire, and brimstone, and it's terrible, and there's nothing good about it, and... It's, it's painful, and you know the story. You learned it just like I did. Well, I don't believe in a physical heaven and hell. I believe in reward and punishment, but not a physical reward and punishment. Here's what I believe. You are free to agree or disagree, obviously, Since no one knows the truth, we're all right. I'll say that again. Since no one knows the truth, we are all right. So I believe that when Rabbi Mel Glazer dies, he's going to be remembered in one of two ways. Either he's going to be remembered as a righteous person, as a teacher, as someone who loved others and cared about making the world a better place, somebody who believed that we have to repair this world so that the next generation will live in a better world than this. That's one way I could be remembered. On the other hand, there are people who could remember Rabbi Mel Glazer, and say, you know, he was not a nice person at all. All he cared about was himself. He didn't care about other people. He didn't give any money to charity. He didn't reach outside of himself. He only cared about himself. He didn't like anybody. Nobody liked him. And we all know people in both categories. So, if you remember me the first way, I will consider that's my reward, and I will be in heaven. And if you remember me the second way, I will consider that my punishment, and I will be in hell. And that's what I believe now. You are totally entitled to believe in a physical place called heaven, where your parents and grandparents will be waiting for you, ready to embrace you when you get there. And you are totally entitled to believe in this more poetic view of heaven and hell. And the reason I say that is because the issue for me is not what's true or false. The issue is how best do mourners get comforted? How best do you comfort mourners? Do you comfort them best by saying you're gonna be with your parents? Or do you comfort them best by saying I'm going to remember you and all the things that you taught me while we were alive together. It's really up to you. And as I said before, nobody knows the truth. What upsets me a little bit is, well, more than a little bit, is that there are lots of people in this world, religious people of all religions, who believe they know the truth they know exactly what's going to happen to you when you die. And if you disagree, you are wrong. Okay, they're entitled to believe whatever they want. But the God that I believe in does not take sides. So there's sort of a rabbinic joke that when the Messiah will come, or for some of you, come again, Somebody is from the New York Times will ask him a question. And that question is, have you been here before? And the Messiah will either say yes or no. Well, I don't want to ask that question. I don't want to know. Because if the answer, if the answer is either yes or no, then we are still divided up into different religious groups. I don't believe that's what God wants. I believe God wants one world, one people. Religions should not separate us. They should join us. So you think about that. Let me conclude uh, with a baseball story. It's called Making Every Pitch Count. In his newsletter, Your Life Support System, author Steve Goodyear shared a story that reminds us to live our lives to the fullest while simultaneously letting go of our worries about dying one day. I love this story. One night, a Dodgers farm club coached by Tommy Lasorda was leading Tucson by one run in the eighth inning. But Tucson had the bases loaded with two outs. According to Don Martin in Team Think, the book uh, which was written in 93, Lasorda decided to pep up his pitcher, a left-hander named Bobby O'Brien. Lasorda slowly walked out to the mound and said, Bobby, if the heavens opened up right now and you could hear the voice of the big Dodger in the sky, and he said to you, Bobby, you're going to die and come up to heaven, and this is the last batter you'll ever face. How would you like to meet the Lord, getting this man out or letting him get a hit from you? I'd want to face him getting this guy out, O'Brien replied. That's right, said Lasorda, you would. Now how do you know that after you throw the next pitch, you're not going to die? This might really be the last hitter you're ever going to face. And if it is, you'll want to face the Lord getting him out. LaSorda figured it was just about the best pep, tep, best pep talk he'd ever given. And he strutted confidently back to the dugout. O'Brien wound up and through the pitch. The batter lined a base hit to right field, knocking in two runs. Lasorda was beside himself. Bobby, what happened, he asked. It's like this, Skip, said O'Brien. You had me so worried about dying, I couldn't concentrate on the batter. Now you think about it and you think about what it means. But more than that, I want you to think about writing me. Remember, if you're not getting information about these uh, talks, I want to hear about it. If you have suggestions about what you want me to talk about, uh, I want you to write me an email. Uh, Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. The first five people that write me good comments, I'm gonna send you uh, a GPS to grief and healing. It'll be my gift to you And my thanks to you. So write me, write me, write me. And I'll read some of them on the air next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.
0: Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.